Shut up and sit down. everyone. I hope everyone is having a fantastic uh, hump day. It's Wednesday all day long and Wednesday for two more hours on my end of town um, of the world, my end of the world. Uh, so I uh, I wanted to do a little housekeeping first on Rough Trade. Uh, we are, the, the content form is currently broken on Rough Trade. I'm aware of it. I'm working on it. I'm a lazy ass. I just hadn't felt like messing with it. I know why it's broken. I know how to fix it. I just haven't. Okay. So, uh, and second, last night, Julie and I discussed her current rough trade story demons. And that gave some of you the idea that you could contact her and try to solve her problem for her in an email. Um, I want you to know that that's actually in violation of the rough trade rules for you to contact her through email um, to give her plot advice. It, I have a feeling you know that since you tried, since you didn't try to do it on the Rough Trade site. Um, discussing our Rough Trade projects d- d- during the podcast and with the people in the chat room is not permission for you to reach out to us and give us uh, feedback uh, or critique or beta or advice on our plot. Um we often discuss our issues and problems because we think that, I mean, it's a good way for other people to see what we're doing. And um, as part of the learning process, you know, that we're all going through together as, as writers, but uh, that doesn't give you permission to violate the rules of, of rough trade. And so I need you guys to be very aware of that. And I know um, that the people who have emailed her have, were not doing it maliciously and it wasn't done out of, um, anything other than a desire to be helpful, but it did violate our, our, our rules. So just, just don't and keep that in mind in the future when we're discussing rough trade projects. And sometimes we talk, we, we discuss them, you know, in the, the chat room too, with, with people who are participating in, in the live chat during the podcast. But again, that isn't permission for you to give us critique outside of these circumstances so, okay, just get that out of the way. <clears throat> um, tonight we're going to talk about the author's vision. And um, what that is is that a lot of times um, when, when I go into a project, I know what I want it to look like at the end. Um, I'm a plotter. I plan my events out. Um, I story Bible. I do timelines. I do brainstorming. I do um, what I call cloud plotting which I've showed examples of in the past on um, the writer's table, I I put a lot of effort into making my vision happen. And as a result, I'm not particularly interested in anybody else's critique on that subject, unless, you know, it's my beta. And I'm like, hey, something's not working. Fix this for me. (laughs) But that's different. But a lot of times people will intrude um, 
with good intentions. Um, and not understand that what they see is impossible to the writer. And it's like sometimes I can read things that I would never in a million years write. Now, I have read ABO. I have read probably more ABO than was healthy for me to read at one point. Um, I can't write it. I tried. I mean, um, I there are a lot of tropes that I read that I, that I don't write. I have no problem reading post civil war fix um in in the MCU but I don't particularly like writing them um it'd be I'll a pairingless pairingless story I don't I don't I will read death fix and one of my favorites of course is freedom is just another word for nothing left to, lo- left just to lose. lose. It just it just kind of came out. It just kind of stalled. It is my favorite fic in fandom. It is gorgeous. It is such a beautiful monument to my OTP. I would never in a million fucking years write it. It's not the damn truth. It broke my heart. And every time I read it, it breaks my heart. Do I read it once a year? Yes, I do. Does it break my heart every fucking year? Yes, it does. Would I write it? No. (laughs) 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 I can't even. It is like my Steel Magnolia is a fanfic. I will never be able to get past that one line without crying. And sometimes I can get all the way to the end, but then he says... That he knew he was that John wasn't. I can't. <laughs> Don't do it. You're gonna get me teary. I'm not. I can't deal. I can't deal. That he knew going into it that nah, John nah, wouldn't nah, be no. And no, it nah. just. Uh, it is. I put myself in beautiful. the corner so I don't have to hear it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, and it's uh, a stunning accomplishment in in just in fiction. I think it transcends fandom, to be perfectly honest. Um, but uh, I couldn't write it. I couldn't write anything like it. A death fic, just, just, I can't. Um, yeah. So all, all times there's things that we can see and we can and we can read that we won't be able to do ourselves. So that's perfectly fine. Um, so, anyways, that's where we are tonight. Inappropriate emails and the author vision. Yeah, email. The, yeah, the funny thing is, I get that people have a they they have a there's a want, right? Like, I sometimes I'm reading a story and I'm like, I would just love it if this went this direction. And sometimes it goes that way, and sometimes it doesn't. But there's like this want, right? And I think that there is like a I'm going to guess like a pervasive disappointment in the MCU that that they couldn't get the rights to the X-Men um, and that the X-Men and, and MCU is very, they're completely disparate. They they have, they have actually contradictory canon in a lot of ways. So, um, and they went a different direction with the enhanced humans in, in, um, in the MCU. So I think there's a pervasive disappointment there. And so I understand what the desire is. Believe me, I understand what the desire is to have the X-Men 
be part of the MCU. And I have read stories that fold in some of the X-Men, and they do it beautifully. They manage to traverse that, that, that gap between the two universes that have occurred in, in the cinema and bring them all and bring them together. And that's great. Um, but we talked about, like last night, um, ultimately the biggest reason why the X-Men don't work in the universe I created was that it, it just, the whole X-Men franchise would not have gone down the same way. Now, the easiest email that we for me to address that somebody wrote me was, couldn't I just insert Charles and the X-Men earlier into the plot? Well, aside from the fact that X-Men don't make sense as they exist, as their, their canon existence, um, don't, don't make sense. We'd have to reimagine the, the purpose of the X-Men and how they got going. That's a lot of work to edit in a major plot point that serves no purpose, you know, all of that work to get them in that serves no purpose but to achieve one small thing. And when I wrote the plot, you know, it wasn't a big deal. I was just looking for a name to plug into a, a leadership position for this council they're putting together for enhanced humans. And in my plot notes, I just put Charles Xavier. That, that, that was it, right? It was just going to be a nod to Charles Xavier. It was not a critical thing. But then when I got to writing it, I went, well, it can't be Charles. That <laughs> doesn't make any sense. And so, but, and I brought it up last night to an illustration of how you have to consider all of your, you know, what, what the re- ramifications are of all the things you bring into your story. And it was just really meant to be illustrative of how you can, you have to look really hard at those decisions. And if something feels wrong, no matter how disappointing it is, it's better to just set it aside. Well, I think it like really disappointed several people that there was like potential for the X-Men in that story and that I just kind of, I don't know, maybe it felt like I was trivially um, blowing them off, blowing it off. Oh, yeah. Kira may have just solved my problem. Um, anyway, oh, really? I don't um, know if you still had that problem or not. But, yeah, it just kind of popped into my head, and I'm thinking that would be perfect. Yeah, it would be perfect. Um, I think I'll do that. Um, it'll be a surprise. Uh, <laughs> so I um, – but then there was a thing that came up. There was, there was one of the other emails that came in um, was trying to suggest ways that I could do it. And there were – make the X-Men work or, or whatever. And there were several suggestions that just failed to account – failed to really take into account what that suggestion would imply. Like one of the suggestions would have made Dom look like an incompetent idiot. So that was, that's not, that's just not a a no go. This is just all suggestions for getting the X-Men in. But one of the suggestions really went into a misunderstanding. I don't know if it's a misunderstanding that they don't understand, that they truly misunderstand my vision for the story or that they don't realize that the suggestion would violate my vision for the story. And it's, it, would, it seems like a minor thing, but Nick Fury is an antagonist in Demons. He is not a villain. And there is a sharp difference between the two. 
sometimes the antagonist is a villain, and sometimes the villain is your antagonist, but they aren't necessarily the same thing. Antagonist is the counterpoint, the counterpressure to the protagonist. They're the counterpoint, right? They're the person providing, in a lot of ways, external tension. And Nick Fury was doing a lot of that in the story. And partially because he's kind of, in my mind, in that Dumbledore kind of role where he is um, kind of, for, for the, he, he thinks his view is the view, right? He's trying to do the right thing but he's doing it the wrong way because he doesn't take anybody else's wants or considerations into account. He just steps all over everybody. So he's not a villain, but he's definitely not a good guy either, if that makes sense. One of my for Nick Fury is that one day he woke up and maybe it was during Captain Marvel. Maybe it was during, it was one of the, one of those moments in that movie when he decided that, cause of protecting the world and it narrowed his it gave him tunnel vision mm-hmm. well, in a way he's a villain either I mean he just he hyper focused and he mm-hmm. never came out of it and in a way he learned one of the things he learned in Captain Marvel is he can't trust the people around him Right, he had to make everybody his pawns rather than let himself become somebody else's pawn. It, I can see how Nick Fury became what he became, but he's not a villain. He's, in a lot of ways, in my opinion, misguided, and he's arrogant. Okay, he's definitely arrogant. He thinks he knows best, but he really does have the right intentions. So. I put him in the antagonist role, but my intention, my vision was never that he's a villain. So one of the suggestions was the reason why the X-Men couldn't participate in the battle was that Nick Fury was having S.H.I.E.L.D. obstruct communication between the FBI and the X-Men when they were looking for this uranium and these dirty bombs. That right there changes the whole vision of Nick Fury. It's not just that ceases to become a plot device and makes Nick a villain because he is now interfering in law enforcement. He's cavalier to the lies and the possible ramifications of what would happen by cutting off um, the help that they needed to fight these robots, by cutting off help that they were trying to get, that he would be effectively um, out of spite basically putting people's lives in grave danger. So that takes him from being an antagonist to it completely changes his character and it makes him a villain. And when you take a character and you make one decision like that, that seems like it's convenient for plot purposes, which if I were, you know, that would be a plot convenience to have him do something like that, have shield be obstructionist, rather than helpful, would be a plot, um, would be convenient from a plot perspective, maybe. But what it does is it alters the tone of the story. Because now they can't trust S.H.I.E.L.D. on the battlefield. Nick is the truly the bad guy. He is not just, he's, he's the antagonist because he's trying to control them, and they're not letting him. 
And that tension is a lot different than I'm setting you up to get thousands or possibly millions of people killed. So, and that's what we're talking kind of about. And if he succeeded in interfering with communication for days and not a single one of the people involved in it, so you know what? We really shouldn't be having this kind of problem for days. Right, because then their competence comes into question. So why don't you go get in the car and go visit the X-Men? <laughs> yeah. Since we can't call their asses and we can't email their asses, something is wrong, something is going on. <laughs> hey, Jarvis. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it on the outside, it looks like a a solution. But when you break it down... It has character ramifications across the board, not just for Nick, but for your entire team. Right. Everybody who has been very competent up till this point suddenly becomes incompetent. This is what we were discussing because, last night about plot choices it, um, impacting your characterization. And this would be a big one because Dom was so desperate to have a backup plan that he train he he got people to help train Hulk how to dismember robots without crushing their torso. Um, that's really desperate backup plan. He really didn't think he would need it. Otherwise, he never would have gone with that as his primary backup plan. He'd have called in the National Guard or something. But the National Guard isn't actually wouldn't be much better of a solution because the whole thrust of why that was so dangerous was because you couldn't afford to hit them from the hips to the shoulders, right? And that's why the swords thing, right? So um, it it was a, it was like a rock and a hard place kind of situation where they were kind of coming up with a, like a like a we're desperate we're going to move with a plan B, and then they got there basically all of their ground troops were felled and they had to go to plan B. So. If he's that desperate, that he wouldn't have reached out to superheroes, especially ones with adamantian claws, who live two hours away, um, it just makes him look like a dodo. Especially since that investigation did go on for more than a week. So, um, right, there was plenty of time to um, to figure out their communication issues. So, making a um, a, a, a choice, and uh, you know, I'm. Since these questions came post podcast, I know this comes from people who listen to the podcast, or just kind of trying to illustrate how these these are examples of why these things don't work. Because I really did think all this through. Of can this work? And honestly, as cases go, I really wanted the sword battle. I wanted. I, like I said, I had this head cannon. The Sentinels prefer close combat weapons, and I really wanted to have an urban sentinel needing to call on having to be able to use a sword in combat. And I was like, now how can I make this happen? So the whole nature of that thing was engineered around that goal. It but actually makes a whole lot something... of sense that they would prefer knives and swords because modern weaponry or even just any projectile weapon at this point um, on earth is, is a sensory nightmare from the, from, from sound to, to smell. Mhm. So, if you've never fired a gun, um, you have no idea how much they stink. 
and I could not imagine yeah. having an enhanced. I mean, I have a really sensitive nose anyway. I probably could have done that whole professional sniffer thing if I started when I was really young, and I really regret that I didn't. Because um, you can make good money doing that shit. Um, but being on a gun range is nauseating for me. I could not imagine having an, a literally an enhanced sense of smell and holding a weapon. Um, a lot of times I will smear Vicks under my nose just to keep it under control. Because not only because it gets on your tongue, because you can smell it and you end up tasting it. Ugh. Well, and if you have if you have sensitive skin, which it's pretty much canon that sentinels do, um, gunpowder residue is it yeah. gets all over you, all over you, and it it definitely stinks. I had a bigger problem lots of miles on the range because I actually am allergic to gunpowder. Of course I am. So, of course you are. Um, <laughs> which I discovered. With the tiny amount you get just kind of all over you, it made me a little bit itchy, but everywhere the brass touched me, it wasn't just the, the, you know, the hot brass. It wasn't just a matter of the heat. It was like huge rashes forming from those spent shell casings coming in contact with my skin. Um, So if you've got sensitive skin, the gunpowder is also an issue. So I think it's partially hardwired into their brains, close combat weapons, um, but also, I do think it's much better on them from a sensory perspective. So I was trying to think of like, well, what kind of problem would they have? Where could they have where swords were a better option? And I was like, hmm, something that they can't shoot at. Well, what couldn't they shoot at? And this is how I engineered what the problem was: is that they didn't know where the actual nuclear material was in these things, and blah 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 blah. So it was. Um, it was carefully constructed to work for the sword thing. But once you start throwing in the availability of something like the X-Men, everything starts to unravel and I would have to have done something else. Um, and I wouldn't have wanted to. So, um, and really for a plotter at this point in your story, um, replotting would be a nightmare. Yeah, because it's not just replotting, it's rewriting to achieve one tiny thing. Um, and I get that people are kind of like, well, I see, you know, I see maybe a path you didn't consider, and, and that's fine. Although everything that had been suggested to me, I had considered except for one thing that somebody said, which, uh, again, this is, I think, a, a lack of understanding my vision for the world, which was a confusion between um, Nick Fury wearing scent masters and um, they, the person commenting inferred that that meant that um, that the the tone and the mood about enhanced humans wouldn't be all that different from the X Men, because Nick Fury it, it implies you know like that the scent mask scent maskers implied prejudice. Well, I hadn't considered that anybody would take it that way because I actually assume that the scent maskers are just that. Nick has secrets that he doesn't want Sentinels and guys, Sentinels to be able to know that he's lying, um, which isn't the same thing. Scent masters being... that don't actually work on primes. <laughs> right. <laughs> that had to be appalling. Um, but the, the assuming that that meant that Nick wearing scent masters means that, that there's pervasive prejudice against Sentinels and guys is actually the opposite. Uh, it doesn't mean that at all. It means they're so accepted as part of society. It's the reverse of how that was taken. They're so accepted as part of society that people don't try to avoid sentinels and guides. They try to just cover up their secrets. 
because if Nick really cared that much, he wouldn't have any Sentinels and Guides working for him. Or anywhere near so, him. Yeah. But right. the other side of that is, is also, um, it's, that, that's just plain spycraft. I mean, he's a spy. Mm-hmm. So he, he has have all kinds of to. countermeasures. Yeah. So it it was there was um sometimes I think it's definitely true that sometimes when you hear an author's having a problem that you don't understand what their vision for the story is or maybe don't really understand what their vision for their world building is or whatever it is. I read a story that I enjoyed pretty well. Um this was a work in progress that I read probably 4 or 5 years ago. Um and uh, it, there was quite a bit to it at the time, and it never got another chapter. And finally, I noticed recently that the author had had changed their summary to say that they never could come back to it, and they were never going to finish the story, and it was abandoned or something to that effect. And I went and read it. I went and re- opened it up and read her author note at the top of the front, front chapter. And by the way, thank you, that author, for A, not marking it complete, and B, for changing your summary to say that it had been abandoned. That's really helpful. Um, <laughs> as opposed to putting it on the last chapter. Um, right? Anyway, and they said that, you know, that, that they've tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to come back to this world, and they just can't work past the problems. I actually have no idea what problems this author sees with this story, because from my perspective, there's really nothing wrong with it. But that's my perspective, and I clearly don't have her vision for where she's going with it and what her expectations were that are not being met. But I really, I mean, I, 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 from a plot perspective, there's nothing wrong with her story. So I really don't, and, and a characterization perspective, she's really consistent. So from the two, like, two major aspects of, like, story construction, she's got no issue that I can see, but I'm not privy to what she's trying to do. So it doesn't make sense. Um, and, and I think, so I think that was just really kind of glaring in these, few emails that I got um, in the, over the last 24 hours is that, well, one, I mean, I think one person really didn't get um, how difficult it is to edit in a plot point, major plot point, because it would be a significant rewrite. And why would I want to do that when I like the story the way it is? Um, but there's also just like, here I zoomed right in on what the issue is for, for part of this is people just not understanding the vision, which is a little bit different than I've got a plot hole. Did my mic go? Oh. No, I hear you now. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times um, I've encountered people who got something out of my story that I – I was like, where, what, how, how did you get there? I mean, how, how is that what you got out of that story? Like that person who said I should warn for extreme politics on ties that bind. I'm like, what? What? Because it's. Okay. Sure, Jan. I don't get it. Okay. Is that, is that, (laughs) is that a warner? Is that a warnable thing? Extreme politics? I don't warn for po- extreme politics. I don't even know what that means. But um, and I didn't respond. But I just, you know, as I have it as saying, sometimes the curtain, um, the curtains are blue. And that's true. Sometimes the curtains are just blue. Sometimes they're just blue. Uh, 
Senator Cage match. Yeah, that would be terrible. <laughs> but also funny. <laughs> anyway. Now, the, one, of the, one of the emails did have a point that I thought was interesting, and that I agree with their point, but it's completely ir- irrelevant to this universe, which is that the Sentinel, that people would still potentially be uncomfortable with mutants or enhanced humans because the Sentinel imperative protects society and that they might be more uncomfortable around mutants who don't have that protect imperative. I agree. They might be, except that they would consider sentinels and guides would be more adept at handling um, enhanced humans who turn to criminal behavior. So it wouldn't become like a pervasive problem that would have society riled up. So I think that one of the things I like about Sentinel Guide universes, and this is again a vision issue, is that they dial down prejudice in a lot of ways. Because to to my way of thinking, the way I build the world is that there's a lot of a lot more acceptance for being different in um, that there. I typically write it that there isn't the prejudices, at least not in over the long term, maybe in pockets here or there against homosexuality because sentinels and guides since the caves have come in all types of arrangements, including homosexual ones. So um, those prejudices, if they did rise up, didn't last very long because if a cornerstone of your society's protection is a group that has homosexual pairings in it, I don't think homophobia would rise quite the same way it does in modern society. So be pockets, but it wouldn't yeah, be it would come up prevalent. Pretty- it wouldn't be yeah, legal. You'd have religious extremism here and there, and you'd have issues with it in bits. It, it, but it wouldn't be the pervasive thing that it became in, in society here. So, um, so because it, 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 it's a very comfortable world in a lot of ways for me to write in, because I feel like I get to dial down the hate, right? Um, and. I find that to be a really nice aspect of Sentinel Guide universes. So would I choose to ever write a, and that's my vision for Sentinel Guide universes, which is where we get into vision versus this could, this could work for your story because just because somebody gives you something that could work for your story doesn't mean that it matches your vision. And that particular point implies that Sentinels and guides are completely ineffective at handling um, enhanced humans who are criminal and therefore society has developed a reason to fear enhanced humans, a significant reason beyond, you know, isolated incidents. So in a world a, where enhanced humans and mutants exist, signals and guides would be considered enhanced humans slash mutants. Yes, they would. There would be no difference between them. They would be a subset of of the mutant class. Yeah. And in this case, because enhanced humans are kind of on the rise where sentinels and guides have existed forever, um, enhanced humans temporarily, which will come out in the last chapter, will temporarily be a subset, not a subset of sentinels and guides, but they're the council for enhanced humans is going to be under the sentinel guide council, which will kind of nurture it into being until it can spin off on its own. Um, and that's just because it's 
like in this world that's so far, there's not a lot of representation from it. Because in the MCU, enhanced humans have existed, um, but they didn't exist in huge numbers, and they managed to hide a lot until that thing that happens, what, in 2015-ish, where those crystals wind up in the fish? Whatever. It's a bizarre plot point, but... um, the terogenesis thing becoming more widespread that happened. Um, so I'm trying to kind of like set up a world where there doesn't wind up being that mass panic when that terogenesis starts happening more widely. So I'm not ever going to get to that in the story or in this universe. It's never going to get that far, but I'm laying the foundation for that not to be the big ugly thing it was in canon. And that's my vision for it, right? So I wouldn't want to write in prejudice when I'm actually actively writing it out. (laughs) And I get that people hearing me talk about a plot problem don't know that vision, but that's the whole point of this podcast is that you never know what an author's vision is. So if somebody's talking to you and they're like, we're having a, they have a, working in the over on the just right server or whatever and they have a plot hole and you suggest something that may be a great suggestion for solving their plot problem but it may not actually fit into their vision for their story and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your suggestion except it actually may not fit and the vision ultimately is something that is um I think in a lot of ways it's first right it's like what am I trying to do with this what is my view of these characters what is my view of this universe? What am I trying to accomplish? Which is why suggestions that take you way away from your intention can feel really, oh, whoa, that's, that's crazy cakes, man. Um, it can put you can off, really you make back. you feel uncomfortable, make you feel like you've done something in your plot to inspire that, and you're like, where, where the hell did that come from? Mm-hmm. Why would you think I would write something in like that, you know? Or um, somebody suggested something to me um, as a plot point in, to solve a plot problem. This was way, way back. And um, I don't even remember what – it was one of my secondary characters, but I don't even remember what the suggestion was that they wanted me to have the character do. I said, you realize that would just like mean, mean that this guy is mind-raping people, right? I mean – it, it was definitely violating somebody's will with empathic control, right? And in, in a way that was not, like, judiciously sanctioned or anything like that, or it wasn't in response to an attack. It was just forcing somebody to their will. And I'm like, oh, mind rape. You want me to have my character do that? Um, that reminds me of that, that bunny. Um, there's a Facebook group that um, one of the minions um, runs. Um it's uh there's a, there's also a mewe version it's called farm bunnies um it's a great group but early on in the group there was this person who posted um what she considered a plot bunny and the plot bunny was that um thor cheats on jane with darcy because darcy gives him a love potion i asked her because the moderator for the group was asleep i, I commented and said you need to put a rape warning on this and she said there's no rape And after I put my eyeballs back in my head, <laughs> I said, are you serious? You're going to have Darcy Ruthie Thor and have sex with him, and you don't think that's rape? 
she deleted the whole thing without responding to me. Yeah, I mean, she turned yeah, Darcy, you know, wow. she, yeah, she turned Darcy into a rapist in the, in this plot bunny. And I was just like, oh god. And she didn't consider it. She never it never even crossed her mind what that was. She just wanted this whole thing where Thor cheats on Jane with Darcy and that's and that was her mechanism for making it happen. And I'm like No. No. But yeah. No. And that's and that's it that's a case of somebody really not understanding the implications of the suggestion. I mean really, really not understanding the implications. Because there's one thing to not understand um, somebody else's vision and why your suggestion won't work. It's incompatible with their vision. There's none that, then there's just not understanding what you're suggesting. Um, and I don't know if that's willful blindness or what that is. You know, it could be that bone deep, ugly behavior that some I've seen people espouse this. This is not my view, folks, but that men can't be raped in that way. Yeah. The last time I've I seen that encountered somebody with that point of view. Yeah, it, it's infuriating. I, it's infuriating. Did you unfriend them? We were, it was in person. It was um, one of my cousins um, had brought a friend to a party. Um, and that friend, we were having a car, you know, so we, we were playing spades and stuff. It was not, you know, not an outright party, but just like a cousin group together thing with friends and everything. This was, I was 19 or 20. And um, so it's been decades. Uh, and um, I don't know how it came up. It, and, but he said that. And I was like, what? You think what? And I often hear it more from women than men. So when I heard it from a man, I was like, are you fucking serious? He goes, yeah, no, you know, guys can't be raped. I said, so, if we drugged you right now and all of us took a turn on your dick, and I do mean all of us, you wouldn't consider that rape? I said, or would it only be rape if one of them butt-fucked you? Would that be rape to you? Or not. Because you wouldn't be able to say no because you were drugged. He got so offended that he threw his cards down, got up and left. And I was like, what? Am I wrong? And they were like, no, he <laughs> needed to be educated. <laughs> yeah, he did. That dude did not need to be out in the world thinking that was not a possibility for him. <laughs> I was like, for real? It happens. Mm-hmm. Men get roofied too by women. It is not and by other men and by other Mm -hmm. men. So, so not understanding the implications of like a love potion and the Harry Potter fandom is pretty oblivious about the ramifications of love potions. Um, I mean, I've used love potions in a story, not in a good way. Right. Never in a good way, okay? But I acknowledge that they exist in that fandom, and they can be a very powerful plot device. But it's still rape. But I see them used casually, like, oh, it's no big deal. No rape warning. And if I see like, one oh, more boy. headline with the term forced sex, I'm going to start stabbing people. Yeah. 
Anyways, let's get off this topic before I just get on a soapbox and spend the next hour and a half talking about it. Well, hour and 19 minutes. Yeah, uh, yeah it's just... You got to yeah, think about your ramifications. When you have your character doing something genuinely fucked up, you need to acknowledge that it's fucked up, even if you let them do it, even if you continue to let them do it. But if you have a character doing something fucked up with somebody else's body autonomy... Don't act like they're a hero, because they're not. No. For fuck's sake. So there's a there's an interesting blend with people where they... You're absolutely right, Lady Holder. That, that whole thing with the body exchange in the universe was appalling. I never saw universe. Well, they did it in SG one where Vala and Daniel ended up in the bodies of two other people in the in um in the other galaxy in the in the origin galaxy, and um, never, Vala got burned at the stake in somebody else's body. See, the burned at the stake thing, I did see. Um, that's actually why I refused to watch SG one from that moment forward. I found that so upsetting um, that I just said I can't watch this show anymore. The whole Ori plot line was really upsetting to me. So, I was much I much preferred the race and the goal. You know what? But the actual the 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 the, the origin brainwashing and and forced religious conversion, I just wasn't on board with it. No, it was it was just too upsetting. From my perspective, I don't. Sometimes I'll allude to the threat of the ori, but I swear I'd rather just write that whole. You know, plot that whole last couple seasons out. I just, I wish they had. They're not very gone background there. I thought, for me. I, I love the character of Vala because I'm a huge Claudia Black fan. I was so happy to see her on there, and when she came down the ramp, and Cameron said, "Great outfit," and she smirked at him. I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> great outfit." <laughs> I love me some Vala, but I hated the Ori plotline. Mm-hmm. And it really consumed so much of the show and for those last couple of seasons. And I don't know. I, I, I stopped watching SG1 over it. So I mean, I got and a little they bit, totally a little, little bit glossed over the fact that the Ori basically, they made Vala carry a rape baby. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Let's get off this topic. <laughs> but yeah, when body autonomy comes into play, own your decisions. When you have something your character is doing that is fucked up, you need to acknowledge that and don't treat them like they're a hero for what they're doing. Even if what they're doing is you think necessary for your plot, don't treat them like a hero for it. That's that's the point. That's the point. Yeah, that the whole genocide thing was also pretty fucked up. But what choice did they have? The aura couldn't be stopped any other way. They couldn't be reasoned with. It's just like the race. You can't reason with somebody who wants who Thinks your food. But with Daniel doing it, you know it's at least somebody who stopped to think about it. Um, at least considered the ramifications and looked at it as genocide because you knew Daniel. That's the way he is. If it had been Carter, it wouldn't have even crossed her mind to worry about it. She wouldn't even remotely no. consider the ramifications of it. Daniel grieved what he did. Mm-hmm. 
I think Daniel um, grieved a lot of the things he had to do in the course of. So, but in a lot of ways, Daniel Jackson is the conscious, um, the conscience of um, SG One, um, and he's the emotional compass. So I think really he was the only character who could do it. You're right. When you have a character do something, whatever it is, um, like, you know, choose to throw their gun away and fight somebody hand to hand. Oh, my God. <laughs> you've got to think about, you've got to think through the ramifications of that kind of decision. Like, what does that say about your character? I can't get past and, that scene. I've never I read know, the rest of that fic because of it. Every time I counter, oh, that's, that sounds great. Let me read. Oh, fuck, it's that. And I close it because I get <laughs> mad. I'm like, I can't deal. I can't deal. No cop. No cop on this planet who has gone any sort of training would surrender his weapon under any circumstances that I can think of. In a situation where it's life or death, he's holding on to his weapon. And if it's empty, he's using it to beat somebody with them, okay? I mean, mm-hmm. what? You don't throw your gun away. I mean, and and choose to hop on top of somebody and fight them bare knuckle. It just doesn't make any sense. It's, that's not the way cops are trained. Um, it's not the way federal agents are trained. It's just there's no training that includes that bit of decision-making. So... The thing is, is that I could see, like, in reading that, what the author was trying to accomplish, what they wanted to have happen in their story. But um, it is, it is a, and 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 what they wanted to accomplish was the character who tossed their gun away to be injured physically. There were other ways to accomplish that. Because that was that was the only thing that it got them was this character being injured in the hospital from a hand, from a beating that happened in a in a hand to hand confrontation and the reason they were in a hand to hand confrontation is because they could have gone away and chose to duke it out. Um, so it it's a it when you when you have your character when you do something for. That's a case of not considering ramifications of your decision, right? Um, that you would have your character do something that's completely against all of their training. And anyway, um, yeah. So it was. It, so there's 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 thinking through what your decisions say about. So even if I were to have, I try to think about the ramifications of the decisions, even that the minor characters in my story make and what it says about them, which is why I can't have Nick Fury obstructing the FBI all that much. Not cooperating with them is one thing, but deliberately, overtly obstructing their ability to do their job casts him as a very different character than what I was trying to do. So I could have made him create more tension by being a being truly obstructionist but that wasn't my vision for him it might have been convenient for my plot but it makes him a completely different character and two-dimensional villains who do we've talked about two-dimensional villains before 
they rarely work out well. Sometimes you have an off-screen villain that's a little bit murky and kind of shadowy, and they're kind of pulling the strings, um, and you, sometimes you never even really get a grasp on anything but more, but, well, not even never. You eventually need to get, you get a grasp by the end of what's going on with this off-screen villain that's kind of providing all of this external motivation. Um, the only villain in the story, I think, is Victor Von Doom. But even his motivation is quite clear. We know what he wants, right? What he always wants. But he always—that's what he always wants. He's very, very single-minded. Um, so, um, when you're making a decision for even a minor character, you need to think about. Does this minor character, if you completely alter their characterization, does it change the tone of your story? And in this case, I think that could have been catastrophic to my story to turn Nick from antagonist to villain. Because if he's really a villain, and he's not just like counter pressure to what Dom and Tony are trying to do, if he's really a villain, they have to deal with him a lot more overtly than they do. Because he's going to get people killed, and that's going to stir up Dom's, you know, protect the tribe imperative. So he can't actually see Nick as a villain and sit across to the table from him and not try to do something about him. Because it was really important that the Sentinels did not get a hold of Victor Von Doom, because they would not have cared about diplomatic immunity, which is why yeah, I he'd have, the Fantastic. He'd have, he'd have bought it. Yeah, that's why it was important that the Fantastic Four deal with that. Now, it was really easy to insert the Fantastic Four into this universe, pretty much without much of a hiccup. The only issue with the Fantastic Four is where were they in the, for the Battle of New York. And that's why I made a nod to them being in Australia at the time, because they, or, you know, you could have them being in outer space, but the bottom line is they live right there in New York. There's no way they'd have missed that battle if they were there. Technically, the Fantastic Four are part of the Fox universe. They're not actually part of the MCU. So, um, yeah, Dark says you give an antagonist to come to Jesus talk, you get a villain arrested or killed. Um, so Victor Von Doom is a villain, and he's a villain in um, the Fantastic Four. He's a villain pretty much in the comics. So if a Sentinel had gotten a hold of him after what he had pulled, he, they wouldn't have cared that he had diplomatic immunity. He would have just probably lost his head because there were enough of them still running around with swords at that point. So I have to be just really careful when I look at who I'm going to bring in who's not actually canon part of the universe. Is can I put them in without creating a ripple in the world that is unmanageable? And the ripples of the X-Men is catastrophic to this particular universe. Yeah, it was <clears throat> trying to see if I forgot anything that was worth bringing up. Yeah. 
it is never my intention to bash Vic. Um, so I don't want to talk about the author or the title of that particular NCIS fic that, that has this characterization decision that makes Tony look like a complete incompetent. Um, but it's important to recognize that when you do something like this to your character, to get that warmth factor in that she apparently wanted, it does create a situation where she turned a veteran cop into an idiot. Mhm. I actually, I really like that sniper episode with the hostages and and Hotch hit Reed and Reed shot that dude in the head. It was great, and it was even greater when he admitted that he hadn't been aiming for the head. <laughs> <laughs> and Hotch was like, "Shit, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't miss." Yeah, I agree. I actually didn't have a problem with the actions there. Um, sometimes, I mean, there are, I think there are some, um, uh, there are some circumstances where a cop might ultimately have to give up his gun, but it would be half to be pretty situations, extreme. But he still wouldn't, I mean, you know, honestly, to ha- to have a cop, toss his side weapon, not surrender his weapon, but toss it aside in a room with a child. And the dude, I think, I'm not sure the dude had a weapon. He might have had a knife. He didn't have a gun. Right, right. The dude, I think, was in a fight with somebody else at the time. Uh, maybe he was beating somebody else, and Tony tried decided yeah. to handle it by throwing throwing his gun away and hopping on this dude. Um, but it's just, it was such a, like, because, like, when I wrote, um, I used to, I've talked about this before, I used to watch NCIS with a friend of mine every week. We'd watch NCIS every week, and she was a police officer. And I'd get to hear all the procedural craziness. But that was something that just did never really come up in NCIS, because they typically have, they do typically have technical consultants on staff. And so they get a lot of at least the, movement around how they are with guns and and arresting people and you know doing tactical breaches and stuff like you kick a door in you don't bash it in with your shoulder they get tend to get a lot of that kind of stuff a little bit more accurate um procedural inaccuracies and um i forgot where i was going with the whole watching her with it thing there was some episode we saw where she just was like what no well, other than Dead Air, I, that she actually stopped watching the show after Dead Air because she's like, I can't. <laughs> no, nope, nope, I'm done. There's That's a moment in a story I read that I can't talk about in depth because um, it, I just can't. Wait, is it the same one? Not the same one. But there's a moment when Tony is going into a hostage situation, and um, in this fic. And his first act is to put two in the chest of the first threat he sees. Because that, that's how a cop acts in a, in a situation like that. So in reality, if Tony had walked into that hostage situation with this dude, boom, boom, it would have been, that would have been it. There would have been no physical altercation. Because this guy has a weapon. This guy's already killed somebody. There's a body on the ground. There's a kid in the room. Double tap. 
Best threat assessment and risk assessment because there's no risking it. There's a kid in this room, a living kid, and there's a dead body. There's no risking a physical altercation with somebody um, and hoping you come out on top. Not if you're even remotely good at your job. Anyways, that's just, you know. No. Cops have a, they have a certain standard of how they're supposed to do things, which is why, because I, when I wrote my um, Teen Wolf EAD thing, um, Overqualified, or whatever the fuck I actually named it, when, when Tony went yeah, down the, the one. basement. That's the one, one I'm talking about. I was overqualified. I couldn't remember what it was, where it was. Oh, yeah. Overqualified so, where, where he shoots Gerard. Boom, boom, done. Yeah, he 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 shoots him in the head. He um because Gerard once Gerard the minute Gerard takes the gun off of Styles, Tony kills him. As soon as he sees his opening, he kills him. He's not putting his gun down. That's just stupid. Then he just winds up dead along with in his mind three 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 teenagers. So yeah, he just I really I mean that was the whole reason I wrote that that story to that point was because I really wanted. Don't need to shoot your right in the head. <laughs> that was total id, folks. It was total id. <laughs> Apparently, I have my id has some violent fantasies because it really wanted Dom swinging a sword around and dismembering things, and it really wanted Tony to shoot Gerard in the head. So, yeah, it's great. I called it a place to belong. I'm probably going to change the name in the final back to overqualified because some, there's no reason that can't work as a title. Yeah, and, and it's, it's stuck in my head. Sometimes the towel just sticks and you're just stuck with it whether you want to be or not. Just, yeah, you got to be careful when you're naming your works in progress for that exact reason. Which is how I ended up with a story called Big Gay Love in Canada. And also mm-hmm. why I have an Inception song, uh, an Inception fit called A Dusty Springfield Song. It is literally called a Dusty Springfield song. It's not even called the title of one of her songs. It is called a Dusty Springfield song. Dusty Springfield song, which is a great. Actually, I, I'm finding myself charmed by that title. But I can see why that would be a working title and not. I don't think Margaret likes Gerard. No. <laughs> um, she got some feelings over there. It's okay. We get you. Just brush it off. She caught some feelings. She wants to be shot in the dick, and then the spleen, and then the knee, and then the head. Yeah. Priority order. <laughs> now I'm, I'm going gonna... to think of that as that story is big lick. <laughs> Thanks, Rogue. See what you did you to just... me, Rogue. <laughs> big lick. To it. Cops are trained to to double tap. Uh, so I don't know why there was three in the first. I um, I don't know why he uh, did that either. But he was going pretty fast. I mean, the fact that he got both of them down, and that was a case of where him throwing his gun away actually did make sense because he did get all the bad guys down and he did toss his gun away right before he dove into the. Right, into you the don't bay, or get your weapon you don't in take salt your, water. 
yeah, that's just not good. Any water, really, but salt water, worse. Definitely not. So, yeah, that, they're, talking about, they're talking about the episode um, in the chat room. There's a question about the episode um, Requiem, where Tony runs through that warehouse, I mean, at speed, and he shoots two guys, kills the two bad guys. And um, he's saying that he shot the first one three times, then shot the second guy twice. And wouldn't it be better to shoot, go back and forth, basically, um, and that's where Kira said she thinks that he, they're trying to, to, to shoot twice. It could be a matter of adrenaline, and um, and he was moving at speed, um, and he put three in that first one to make sure he was down because he didn't want to stop and verify. Yeah, I mean, he was he was going fast. There was no pausing and getting behind something. He just sprinted through that warehouse um, shooting. And it's a testament to his accuracy with because it is not easy to even walk and shoot accurately, much less run. So they established in that episode that Tony has a high degree of firearm proficiency. He can also hold his breath for a very long time, especially for somebody who has has a plague. (laughs) Right. So I would imagine he'd be firing as fast as he possibly could to, until the person dropped if he's running. And that actually makes sense to me. So that scene didn't strike me as odd in any particular way. Yeah, Gerard, like Voldemort, looking at other people and saying, man, you're fucked up. <laughs> like, Really? Who are you to judge? <laughs> are you fucking serious? <laughs> Definitely stuff that happens in canon is like the writers were not. We, we've talked about that a lot. Writers don't consider the ramifications of what they've written. Um but like, was it just last night that you said your your goal is to do better, <laughs> not do worse? <laughs> anyway, so on the topic of vision, um, as opposed to plot ripples, because you can, a ripple effect can change your vision quite a lot if you aren't careful. And then you're sitting there stumped going, I can't figure out why this story doesn't work anymore. And then you lose inspiration and it ends up in a work in progress folder and you never look at it again. Oh, wait. Is that just me? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) And it does. It's difficult to rewind a problem, especially if it's deeply embedded in your story. And, I mean, there have been times when I've had a deeply embedded problem where it was just easier to move on to another story because, I mean, I would have to have been really attached to the story idea. Um, basically, you're basically embarking on a, on a re- rewrite 
with when, when you have a really deeply entrenched problem that has an extensive ripple effect. The other thing you could do is if, if, you're don't, if it's not a plot hole, but it just is basically violating your vision for the story, is you could reconceive the story. And that can be di- – believe me, I know I can be difficult to do. If you've got a very particular vision, if you like it, – sometimes it's worth putting the project aside to see if what you actually wrote is something you like. Because writing something different could just be that you, you need to get on board with a different vision. But sometimes trying to make your same vision happen. We had an example of this in um, – although I very quickly got on board with the new vision. Um, when we talked about – was it Big Fucking Plot where we talked about the four Shepherd brothers having the genetic keys to Atlantis? I think so. And this – the scene that I had conceived the story around didn't wind up actually working. Now a single scene as a, as a story impetus is a really narrow vision because scenes a lot of times don't work out the way you expect them to when you actually get there in the writing. So that was always sketchy as a, as the vision of the story went that single scene. But I was able to hang my hat overall on the vision of the story, which was, that the four brothers would um, would eventually wind up on Atlantis together and that they, when they all were on Atlantis at the same time, that it would truly unlock the city. So I kind of had to readjust. And I, and I love what we came up with in that, you know, and I did the first episode of that for Evil Author Day a couple of years ago, I think. I actually liked it so much once we got done with that big fucking plot episode that I think it was like just like three weeks or something before I finished that first episode. So it was um, it was worth having the discussion about that my this scene I had envisioned wasn't working and and figuring out a new a new angle because um, I wanted to put something I liked better and so sometimes it's worth doing that. Does my does my vision fit the story I actually plotted? And sometimes you wind up plotting something that isn't what you expect, isn't what you actually intended to plot, or you wind up actually writing something that isn't what you plotted. Or you fail to consider something. It's funny, for a lot of plotters, if they fail to consider something, their writing will be on point, but it's not matching up with the plot document. And then they're stumped. And sometimes you just take a step back and figure out where you want to ride. And it's because that part of you that writes well and is good at this, right, is that creative energy, that part of you that understands ripples and character development and plot advancement. You're cruising along in the scene doing the right thing, but your plot document isn't in sync with it. And sometimes you got to stop and take a step back and figure out where you went wrong. And usually for me, the problem was a plot hole that I hadn't realized. And then I just fixed my plot. So it's sometimes you just got to do that. Making a mistake that... For me, when I saw on a story, it's um, really never... It's more of a... I get frustrated with characterization. And that's where I normally stall. And a lot of those times, like, that can come from ramifications that I didn't 
fully think through. And for me, when I get there, that is a super frustrating place for me personally to be because it's something that I'm normally good at. And when I encounter something that I didn't account for, it's so infuriating that it's difficult to get past. I, it doesn't throw me off quite as badly. It, although it can throw me off for a while, and by a while I might mean like a couple of years. Um, <laughs> I mean, I had one of my one of my EADs um, react with that. Right? It it sat on my hard drive for two years after I wrote it because what I wrote didn't match my plot document, and I was really frustrated with where I had screwed up, how I had screwed this up so badly. Well, actually, the story was fine. I just, I was making the right choices, but I really was really frustrated that I had screwed this up, but I did get over it. Kira might not get over it. <laughs> she might argue about prejudice. I mean, sometimes I just don't get over it, and it's just really, really frustrating. But when it comes to the vision of a story, um, like what, what you're planning to do with your work, what you want to accomplish with it, fundamentally at its, at its core, at, at the heart of it, um, this whole verse, the stick around and demons is a romance. It's about a relationship. It is more relationship driven than a lot of my stories are. Cause I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm a relationship writer. Sure. But this one's really relationship driven from the, from the time they meet until the end, this is about their relationship evolving. And, the theme is a little bit different between the two parts. And in the second part, the second story, it's really about Tony coming to grips with his own demons, his issues, and getting past them so that their relationship can move forward. Nowhere in that is there room for reimagining the X-Men. It doesn't serve the purpose of the vision. It might have served some plot purpose that I actually don't have. I don't have a purpose for that in my plot, ultimately. But it it would definitely wouldn't deserve the vision because it's 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 a complicated bit of world reimagining that doesn't do anything for me. Which is why ultimately the X Men are incompatible with my vision for the story. And people might not know that from the outside. Although I would, I actually would hope that people read that story, get that it's about the two of them, and not about anything else. But maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> you never know what missed, somebody's going to get out of your work, and you can't control that. Mm-mm. You can't control what your readers see in your work and what they get out of it, and what assumptions they make about. Um, what you produce. I mean, there's probably a whole swath of people who believe I'm into extreme BDSM. I'm not. I have my kinks, but there's no sex dungeon in my house. (laughs) And and that you have a giant cat named Quark, apparently. (laughs) I did have a Maine Coon. Uh, I no longer have any cats because my husband is allergic. 
I, there was, I don't remember, I don't know which story it was, but poor Kira had to hear all about it. Um, there was <laughs> one, most of the time, I think, it's pretty clear to me most of the time that my readers get what I'm doing. Um, every once in a while, somebody's way off the reservation. It's like, wow, where did you get that from? Um, there was somebody, um, and it wasn't an intrusive kind of comment, but there was there was kind of like this thread of comment here and there about demons, about the person was reading things between the lines, let's say it, that weren't there. And they were excited about it. And I was just sort of like, you know, that's not happening, which was that, and since it's in the vein of ramifications, which was that Blair and Jen, Blair and Kyle and, and prob, Richard at least, but probably Blair and Kyle too, were sensing that Tony was coming online. No, that was not happening. They were confused by Tony, but they didn't think he was actually coming online. They actually thought that that wouldn't happen. Because he's much older than a pe- – because they knew he would have to be a powerful guide if he were coming online. And that at his age, that, that could be really bad. And so they actually did not think that that was happening. And if they really thought that, they would have been very negligent to not prep him and try to get him some instruction and keep a close eye on him. So that re- they were reading that between the lines, which is fine. I don't care that they thought that they were seeing that. Um, more than anything, people were mystified by Tony and Dom's connection because they didn't think he would come online, which is why they were confused. So, but it would have been very negligent of them to, if they legitimately thought that he was coming online to let him just keep walking out the door without warning him, prepping him, explaining to him what might happen. Um, so that that's just a, a little bit of a failure to understand how I approach that kind of thing, which is fine. People see what they see, and I don't. It, it's it's not a big deal. Um, but for the most part, it's clear in feedback that people get where I'm going, and they get and that's great. But there was I don't remember what story it was, but it was like I swear it was like seventy percent of the feedback feedback was so off. It was just so. And it startled me because I've never had that experience before. It was a rough trade project, and I don't remember which one. And it, people were just – they were complimenting me on – like every time I post a part, they are complimenting me on things I wasn't doing and looking forward <laughs> to things that weren't going to be happening. And I was just – behind the scenes, I was having a complete mental meltdown. <laughs> and I was like, is it really that unclear? Am I really being that obtuse? I don't understand. And I was just – so messed up because I was like, where did I screw up that I have conf- apparently, you know, confounded like 70% of my readers. I don't understand. Um, and it really threw me and like Kira had to like, you know, pat me on the head for like, I don't know, like a week because I <laughs> messed up about it, but it ultimately all worked out. <laughs> um, I think by the time we got to where I was going, People were really on board with it. People were very surprised. I remember people being surprised. What story did I write where people were really surprised at where I was going? Um, was uh, was it the Harry Potter one, the, the Snape one, the one that I can't say? Oh, oh, Leo Moto. Yes, that was yeah. it. That was it, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was it. He, people made some assumptions, yeah. and I was like, and it was really, it was really terrible of me to find it as amusing as I did. 
um, <laughs> assumptions versus her reaction to the assumptions. Like, no, dude, you're not really saying that. You're just making assumptions. They're trying to, you're trying to guess your plot. Just, just keep going. <laughs> yeah, I'm right. Because, like, pe- multiple people were assuming it, right? It wasn't, like, one or two. It was, like, I- I'm used to one or two people having a wrong assumption or reading between the lines when there's nothing there. Yes, I can foreshadow, but there's not always something between the lines. Um, as as says, as we've said tonight, yes, that was when he went back in time. Um, sometimes the curtains are blue. But people, so many people were misinterpreting what was going on that I was like, am I not conveying my story right? And I was just having this whole <laughs> neurotic thing going on. But I was just like, I'm just, I'm just going to stick to it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm just going to go there. I'm, I'm just going to stick it out. <laughs> so, so, yeah. And I thought that I had foreshadowed some stuff that I really apparently didn't, or at least not very well. But it was um, – it was me being really neurotic in the background. And normally I don't get like that if people misinterpret things. I think it was just that, A, I was a little bit insecure about the project to begin with, but that so, such a large percentage of the readers were misinterpreting it was made me feel like I was really off track. Um, well, what I would say also about that is that you're not – I would not consider Harry Potter one of your main fandoms. I mean, you don't have a lot of work in Harry Potter. And so the Harry Potter readers, um, a lot of them came into your project never having read any of your work um, because, or having read very little because you have like one or two Harry Potter stories in your site. One? I think, I think one, Slytherin Black, has never been posted. Okay. So, and so they didn't, a lot of the readers in Harry Potter had no idea what your style was. And um, you have a very distinct writing style, and your regular readers know better than to anticipate you because they know going into it that that they probably can't, <laughs> so they're not going to bother trying. But you kind of stuck your foot into a new fandom or a, a fandom out in a different circumstance. And a lot of them probably didn't get to read Slytherin Black because our Harry Potter audience has increased exponentially on Rough That's Trade. huge now. Yeah. So, yeah. And I don't, they just weren't prepared for your style of writing because even, I mean, I would say in, in Harry Potter, you've got a very unique voice and um, they just weren't ready. Maybe next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was just it was just such an odd experience for me because um, to feel like I was so I felt so off kilter. I mean, I eventually got like got my groove back, but it was it was an odd experience um, for me. And 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 I think that maybe people were looking for a more familiar like familiar Harry Potter <laughs> trope, but it was mm-hmm. such a different. I would say there's a very minority Harry Potter fix that center around the 40s there's some but i there's not a, it's not a huge swap and probably of, more since fantastic beasts so yeah yeah and this was pretty much right around the time the first movie was out i think so or maybe a little bit after but it was i was just so kind of like well uh, uh. yeah and yeah the ones in the 40s would definitely center more around the fantastic beast fandom than harry potter so it was um it was just an interesting um, experience for me to feel like people weren't seeing where I was going, and um, and ultimately it wound up being just perfectly fine. But it was, I definitely had, I definitely had a little meltdowns behind the scene and 
Kira was tolerantly patting me on the head for like half the month. So it's okay. <laughs> you're fine. It's fine. I'm like, it's you'll okay. tell me if it's really off, won't you? <laughs> yep. Because I did have a very specific vision for that story that would not come out until the end, which was that, you know, the reason why all this stuff had happened was that Merlin was kind of arrogant and thought that he could get past this big thing, and he couldn't, and wound up kind of like his arrogance was kind of a little bit going to doom the world, and... um but that that couldn't come out until the problem had been fixed. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, that's why I kind of just stuck to those guns, no matter how much people were misunderstanding what I was doing. And then it's like, okay, I feel good about it now. I feel like I got, I feel like I got through it. But even then <laughs> it was interesting. People were, remember people were still misunderstanding it. Um, yeah. So Oh, I guess there was all these the comments. Oh, I guess I guess Harry Potter is is Arthur. Oh, that's that's an interesting assumption. Not, not even I you know, I never thought that. So I was like when I first saw that one, I was like, that's really crazy. That's just not no. Yeah, I do tend to, with Harry Potter, tend to do go big or go home world building kind of thing or big projects. But that that's Harry Potter for you, right? I mean, my first Harry Potter story was like, I think it was 25K. It was supposed to be 10. Um, <laughs> and I had, a, I had a really hard time containing myself. Yeah. Like, really hard time. <laughs> it's difficult. And then... And then it's just, and then it's just the next one I did, I just blew up. Very difficult to maintain. And but the, the, the Harry Potter canon is huge, right? But then you also, there's just so much room to, to do, you know? Yeah, there's, there's so, so much, much to play with there. Yeah. And so many characters. A lot of them underexplored. I think I think you see Sirius in a lot of stories, but I think he's underexplored as a character, which is one of the reasons why he was the main character in Southern Black. I do think he's underexplored, and um, it would be fun to um, kind of open him up a little. Dig deep. Yeah. I I really find him an intriguing character. I think you can do a lot with him. And because he's underexplored in canon, you can really do a lot of character work with him that it's a little bit harder to do that you can't do. I don't think you can do as much character work with the characters that are more explored, like, you know, Harry and Hermione. Even Draco is better explored than Sirius is in canon. And I think... I think that Draco's also underexplored. 
a way because Harry is, as you pointed out, so remarkably incurious. He um, at probably everybody winds up being underexplored except Harry. <laughs> it's like they're right? going curious little hero. Because <laughs> he is like the least curious character to ever be created. How did he not have five million questions? How? How about there yeah, not exactly. five million questions? We we had five million questions and it wasn't even happening to us. Right? I'd be like, what's that? Where's that? How do I do this? I want to go from here to there. Why am I in these circumstances? What happened to my parents? Why was I left with my aunt for so long? When am I going to get some new pants? I mean, it just would be like, I would never shut up. They would They would have to sedate me. The questions would never stop. I have all the questions. All so of all the, the questions. La- yeah, all the questions. So all the ladies who wrote me, I some of you may hear this podcast. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad, but it just gave us an opportunity to explore a little bit more about ramifications of decisions because there especially one person wanted to give me some very concrete examples of things I could, you know, talk about what the ramifications of those would have been. And it's kind of a learning experience, but also got us thinking about the difference between sometimes a plot hole is not just, you can't just fill it with anything because it may not always work. And that's where the whole um, story vision thing comes in is that not every, not every solution to every problem is going to, no matter how viable it is, not every solution is going to fit. It's like, yeah, you know, that would work to make this happen, but does that fit the tone, the theme of the story? And sometimes, you know, that's really out, which is why it can be very difficult to get quick help sometimes. Like just if you've got a really in-depth plot problem that you need to work out, you really sometimes need to loop somebody in on your whole vision for your story. You know, give them the whole synopsis of what's going on and what you're trying to accomplish because – they could give you 50 solutions to your plot hole and maybe none of them that they're giving you work. And that can just wind up feeling frustrating. It's like, how come nobody gets me? And it's like, well, you may need to convey more of your vision. All your vision. Like you're totally fucking up. I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to ask if you ever had a case where people really misunderstood your vision. But then I remember back to the beginning of the podcast and warning for political um, content. And I was like, yeah, people have missed revision several times. <laughs> but there was also this incident with Ties That Bind where, and this is actually when I stopped posting on LiveJournal my updates for my fic. Um, I posted to a McShep fic with an update for um, uh, A Lovely Agony. I believe that's the one. It's the one where they end up back on Earth and um, Kevin Jordan is flayed alive. And I put a very explicit warning on my fic. And I said that those of you who are sensitive um, may wish to um, be careful when reading this. And I got this immensely offensive comment on my site telling me how dare I try to say that, you know, 
that BDSM is a sensitive topic and da 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 da, and just going off on me for my warning, assuming that I was warning for sexual content and BDSM and the gay thing. They obviously didn't know who I was or anything. They just went off on me without even reading it. And so I wrote them an email and said, actually, that warning was about the fact that an OC in the story gets played alive with a bullwhip. But um, thanks for the for the heads up about BDSM readers not being sensitive. <laughs> yeah, you're not sensitive at all, Snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> and that is the last time I posted to the McShep um, Live Journal with an update for my fic. <laughs> I'm like, I'm done. I can't. I can't. Because what? <sighs> Sometimes you just got to look into it. It's like, where are the idiots coming from? You know, like, what is going on here? Um, yeah. Every once in a while, I'll get, like, a spike in interest on a story, and I'm like, where is this coming from? Like, one story. And usually if it's one story, not my whole site, but, like, there's an incredible increase in traffic on one story, it's coming from a wreck somewhere. And usually I can kind of figure it out from the referrers, from the referring sites. Um, And sometimes that spike in story really can bring with it a flood of what-the-fuck comments. And it could be that the person who was recommending the story wasn't on point with the recommendation, like somebody asked for a specific type of story, and you know, and I don't have any any context for these shenanigans, right? It's like somebody asked for this specific type of story, and then somebody recommended my story, and then they come over and find that my story doesn't fit the bill. And instead of going back to the person who gave them the recommendation, they tell me it doesn't fit the bill. And I'm like, I really don't know what you're talking about. I say, well, I don't really think that this is this kind of story. And it seems so out of context. Like, what are you talking about? It's not this kind of story. I never said it was. And (laughs) then I go and I'm looking at my site traffic and I see that, you know, that this story is getting hundreds more views than any other story that day. And I look at the referrers, and I go, go back to some rec group on LiveJournal or something, and somebody's asked for a recommendation where this such and such happens with Tony, and somebody puts up you know, this story of mine. I go, that story doesn't match that criteria at all. <laughs> but the bizarre thing is that then people tell me about it, right, as opposed to going back right? and saying, this doesn't fit the bill. This is not what this story is about. Like, like I'm to blame <laughs> for them getting a bad rec. Um, not that any of my stories are bad, but it just didn't match, right? This is but yeah. Sometimes really you just gotta figure out where the crazy is and like cut it, problem. cut it off, you know. Yeah, I actually went on to a, a wreck at one time and said, um, "This this story doesn't really meet meet this criteria, but this one does." <laughs> and I, it wasn't one of mine. I gave them a story in the fandom that did meet the criteria they were looking for, so. Like, I just went right out there and basically replied to the wreck of my own work and said, this doesn't fit the bill, but this other story does. Sometimes, yeah. like, well, I used to be heavily on the live journal. I would get, like, a ping because somebody's mentioned me. I go over there, and I'm thinking, whoa. I really wish you hadn't put me on that list. <laughs> if I could edit your comment, I would. <laughs> It's just that's not, that's not accurate. That's just not accurate at all. Uh, 
But in Live Journal was also how I got labeled a misogynist. So, okay. I mean, Live Journal used to be like for, it was like for a while there, it was a hub for fandom, right? And then mm-hmm. now it's just sort of like, it's weird stuff happens over there. I appreciate the Fix Finders group because there have been a couple of fix that I lost that those Fix Founders just ran right in and found. Um, but man, there's also some really weird stuff that comes out of there. People really misunderstanding and some just some very odd behavior that I feel like is a legacy of stuff that was going on about five or six years ago. Maybe a little longer than that, actually. But yeah, somebody actually was looking for a fic recently, and my story was recommended. They said, "Oh, the story that I think that you you know that probably fits it is this one by Jilly," and they give a link, and I was like, "Wow, I have I have one story that might might fit the bill. I don't think it's it, but it might fit the bill. But it isn't the one that they linked. <laughs> the one that they linked <laughs> sounds nothing, nothing at all like this per what this person's looking for." I'm actually so confident that the one story that is remotely like what they're saying isn't the story they're looking for that I didn't even comment on it. But um, but it was just funny that somebody came up with this, this link to one of my stories. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> That's not what's going on in that story. Sometimes, like, I would be on that and they would, like, someone would be describing my story and they would only describe, like, the sex and I would be so infuriated that I wouldn't respond. Even though I knew it was mine that they were looking for, I'm like, nope, not doing it. <laughs> because well, what? So there was somebody looking for a story once on the NCIS Fix Finders group. Um, I don't remember. I, I want to say what they were looking for was de novo, but I could be wrong. Um, but and the reason why that jumped to mind is it seems like of stories people can't remember that are mine. De novo is the one that comes up the most that people are looking for. Um, but person describes the story, and I didn't recognize it from the description. I was like, I have no idea what that is. But I'm gonna walk, I'm gonna check back here in a couple of days and see if anybody found it because I'm curious what that story is. It sounds good. And then somebody, one of the people in the comments says, "Is it such and such?" And they listed, they linked to De Novo. And I'm like, no, that's not it. And the person responds like like four hours later and says, yes, that's it. I can't believe I forgot. And I was like, what? Right. <laughs> what do you mean that's it? It's not my story. <coughs> Are you even that's not what I wrote? <laughs> Did I miss something? But I'm sitting there thinking, this story sounds really good. Uh, I'm going to watch this thread and see if they find it. And it turns out it's my story. I'm like, I would not have picked it. Well, I would not have picked the story is very good. <laughs> I went and reread it. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just it was just so funny because it's happened a couple times where somebody's described my story. And what's interesting is I don't recognize it, but that somebody else does. I don't recognize the description of my work remember of your work and you know what um it's it, it, it that's really interesting i miss what live journal used to be um but you know i have no interest whatsoever in 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 going back to it I mean, you can use the Fix Finder groups without. You, you can use them with an open ID. Um, 
Yeah, I log in with Oprah. He's got to cuss somebody out, but <laughs> you can log in with your Facebook account. You know, you don't if I you did. want to just comment. As long as the as long as the um the what's it called is the um as long as the the, the community is open um, to posting by from external IDs like Facebook, you can go. I find the, the Thick Finder groups is the only thing I really care about Live Journal for anymore. And I log in with my open ID from Dreamwith. So, but yeah, you needed to cut somebody out. So that was important. And mission accomplished. And you always wanted to be the chief cuss router. And I, like I told you, I, I am the chief cuss router. Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally the chief cuss router. And that was a case of somebody failing to notice the vision of rough trade. <laughs> Making a vision. And you know name. what, though? When someone goes outside of a trade to do that, they are circumventing my rules on purpose. So whatever they get in response from me, they've earned. Mm-hmm. Just saying. So if you're listening to this podcast and you didn't like what I said to you, don't be an asshole. Quit trying to break the rules. Because actually you've been really clear that if people – you know, go hunt down authors off-site in order to give them feedback that they couldn't get on-site. If Kira can figure out who you are, she's going to ban your butt. But if she can't, she's going to take her, her job title of chief cusser outer very seriously. If I can't do one, I'll do the other. And sometimes if I had the possibility, I might do both. So that's right. You play bitch games, you win bitch prizes. But the vision of rough trade is in the name. Rough Draft sounds like a terrible name for a site, so Rough Trade is much better. But, um, you know, it, it, it's right there. It's a Rough Draft. So people going off-site to try to track people down and complain about stuff that's happened in their stories, uncool, very uncool. If you read on a site dedicated to challenge Rough Draft challenging um, and you feel the need to complain about reading a Rough Draft, You're an idiot, and fuck you. You need to work on your comprehension skills. Rough trade has has always been. I mean, it has never not been a rough draft challenge. Even I mean, in the in in the beginning when it was called Naked Nano, I didn't even encourage people to do a spell check before they posted. I do that now. Spell check or something. I don't care. I don't actually care if you do a spell check, but I do encourage it. Mostly because it's really embarrassing for me when I post something and then I go back and I see a ridiculously misspelled word. I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> that word doesn't exist in the dictionary. Oh. In no dictionary know that word. does that word exist. What the fuck did I mean there? <laughs> yeah. I usually run spell check, but not even always. Sometimes, it be- I think part of it is because I'm a late night writer. I swear I do most most of my writing at night. Um, but sometimes I'm posting, like, within 10 minutes of falling into bed. So sometimes I'm exhausted, and it's just like, well, it's going to go up tonight and not get spell-checked. Or it can go up sometime tomorrow and get spell-checked. Eh, I'm going to post it now. Um, <laughs> but I do okay, usually It's probably mostly accurate. I don't run Grammarly, though. I know several people take the time to run Grammarly now um, and just – sanity check it in that way too 
I admire your dedication, but part of that I have to, to defend myself a little bit. Part of that is that I am on a Mac, and Grammarly is a lot more limited on a Mac. I have that size limitation. I have to cut out just that chapter. I have to open up an extra app. It's a little bit more of a pain in the ass. It's not just built into Word. So if I was on a PC, I would probably run my thing through Grammarly, but I'm not, so I won't. (laughs) That's the final thing. That's the last thing I do with my stories is plunk them one chapter at a time into Grammarly. That is terrible. And then disagree with it a lot. (laughs) No, that antecedent is perfectly clear, you evil bitch. I wish I could turn off specifically that. My antecedent is rarely unclear. Rarely. I mean, like, super rare. It is really rare that I don't, that it's it's not clear. Usually, it, it sometimes, like, it was giving me, you know, shit about she, 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 you know? Um, and the only she in the entire scene, in the entire chapter, was you. I'm like, it is not unclear who we are talking about. It is little girl There's bot. only one. Leave her alone. <laughs> only one girl. There's only one she. Leave her alone. Thank you, Edie. Edie doesn't care about my <laughs> terrible spelling. All I do is spell check. But Grammarly actually will catch, it does catch a couple of things that I screw up on occasion. Like it will, it doesn't catch all my missing words, but it does catch quite a few of my missing words. It does. So if I, I read, that's really interesting to see that. Um, it would be like, bitch, you don't make any sense right here. Oh, thanks, Grammarly. Cause I, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, then you have to look at it for a while and think, what the fuck is actually missing? It can be difficult. Yeah, writer problem. Minor spelling areas. We all have we all have like our own personal pet peeve. Um, but yeah, but, but the funny thing is, even those for the most part, even my pet peeves, I I manage to turn them off when I'm reading rough drafts because I know I'm looking at a rough draft. So I managed to not get like really wrapped around the axle about it, about it. And, you know, if I'm reading a finished work that has Sato voice, you know, I, there's a solid chance that I might be just having a tantrum and going in the kitchen and having a, getting a popsicle because that's really irritating. Um, but in a rough draft, yeah, whatever, I don't care. I'll just hope that they notice that before they get to <laughs> Before get, I haven't seen that on Rough Trade. So somebody has Sato voice out there. I haven't. If you do, I haven't read your story. I'm not talking. I don't try not to make pointed comments about people who are writing on Rough Trade. This is something um, I actually did read. Somebody speaking in Sato voice. <laughs> um, in a story recently, a finished work, and I was just like, no, that's not the way that works. That's not even the phrase. Is it worse than chirped? Really? Yes, because it's it's a completely it should be sato voce. It's not sato voice. Um, <laughs> I find it worse than I chirping. Know, I'm just saying, I, is it really? Worse I find than it worse than chirping. I'd rather lots <laughs> of things chirping than one sato voice. I drives me crazy. Stop. And the thing is, it's not the most common turn of phrase, right? It's not the most common expression. So, um, it it's something they've picked up from seeing it in stories, right? And they've decided but the I'm person who spelled it the, correctly. The, 
the voce has been misspelled and or not been misspelled, but spell check said it was misspelled and they just didn't pay attention when they were saying yes to misspellings. I could, that's true. I could have voce in my custom dictionary because I've never had it gag on it, but it could be in my I've dictionary. I'm not sure. I've never my custom dictionary, so I'm going to check. But it, um, if the person is not doing it as a matter of spell check, it means that they looked, they saw that in use, and they assumed the person who was using it correctly was using it wrong, which is just like it's it, it's one of those ones that just I don't know why sort of voice drives me batshit insane, but it does. Uh, no, like, spell check didn't hit that, it. I just so I can't even give them that. I was trying to give them, I was trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. The spell check didn't hit it. So. Yeah, so it's like when I see that in a story and I see the whole Sato voice thing, I'm like, oh, that's not the way that's spelled. One of those weird little pet peeves that can actually cause me to nope out of something that I'm otherwise enjoying. I have to be enjoying it a lot because it can be a hard stop for me. Um, but, you know, but it, even that one, when I see it wrong in a rough draft, I just kind of go, well, here's hoping they can fix that later. <laughs> Just keep going because you train yourself to read. I'm reading a rough draft, and you move on. And honestly, if you can't turn off that part of you that is uncomfortable reading a rough draft, then just don't read on rough trade because it's not for you anyway. Rough trade isn't for readers. You're welcome as a reader to rough trade, but it's not for you. Rough trade is for writers. And um, I have, I have several, several regular readers who do not read my work on Rough Trade, um, because they don't like reading work that is rough. They don't like it, and you know, that's fine. They always wait for my work to be finished and be on my site. Um, I have no problem with that. I actually completely respect that they know themselves that well. That that they know that they, I don't necessarily know how I feel about the fact they need to share it with me, but um, (laughs) I like that they, they know their own limitations well enough and their preferences well enough to know that they can't get past the irritation of reading a rough draft. And that's fine. I have this this one reader who who always comments um, that they read it on rough draft, they read it on rough trade. And often they will say, um, and it's still pretty much the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, you write a really clean well, draft, so. Thank you. I'm a potter, so happen? in my rewriting, it's it's usually just a, a, a sentence choice or um, sometimes I might have to add a scene if, if something doesn't balance out when I'm doing my... I have this weird thing where I check the word count on all my chapters to make sure they're hitting a rhythm that I like. And if, it's, if something's a little off, I might add a scene or take a sentence out to, to, to balance it. And it's just an OCD issue I have. And you probably, for the most part, never even notice that I do it. <laughs> I am a terrible speller. Yeah, that's the truth. It, spelling is a re- My inability to spell is the only thing between me and world domination. Okay? Okay. (laughs) 
I don't. I don't think I'm weirdly spelled. Um, I think what you get with me more is a lot of missing words. <laughs> it's, like, it's like there are like no articles in the last like I don't know two pages. Was that on purpose? No, of course not. Leave me alone. <laughs> it's like where where are all the words that go in here? I don't I don't know why. Especially when I'm tired, it's just like words become optional, which are articles particularly are. Um, victimized by me when I'm tired but it can be any word just they're just gone they're just not there and I'll be rereading it going how could I have reread this twice already and not notice that there's so many words missing because your brain supplies them yeah so that's Mm -hmm. yeah and it often will supply the reader as well so it's okay (laughs) yeah it can be hard it can be hard even for when I some of the words especially like articles sometimes even beta readers don't see it is because your brain tells you it's supposed to be there it's like an article belongs there, and so it sees an article when there actually isn't one. It's like that whole thing where you can take out all the vowels in a word and people can still read it. Yeah, that's kind of freaky. So my, you know, my word dropping is just, that's part of my rough draft. And if it drives somebody absolutely bonkers, um, are you call, who are you calling a colonizer? No, <laughs> so I, I took it from her sentence up above. Oh. Don't worry, most of the world was colonized by white people who couldn't spell to save their lives. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's... <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's just the way our brains work. <laughs> Yeah, if you're, but if if it drives you crazy, it's good to know that about yourself and to wait for the finished product. I get a lot of flack for saying that rough trade isn't for readers, and um, there's there's always somebody when I say it who sends me an email telling me how offended they are. But the thing is, is that I didn't build it for a reader, and there's no reason for me to lie. Um, and there's nothing shameful about having a space online for writers. There's nothing to be ashamed of there. There's nothing that I need to apologize for, for the construction and use of rough trade. I'm not going to apologize for it, and I'm not going to pretend that it is less or more than what it is. And It is a writer's space. It will always be a writer's space, and that's just the way it is. It's not about you. It's about me. And what I wanted to accomplish, and so, you know, you know, uh huh. So stop, stop, stop finding offense where there's none to be had. There are plenty of spaces in fandom that are designed specifically for readers, and most of them are fan fiction archives. Trust me, you you are you are what they are going for there. That you're what they want as the reader. They care much less about the writer because, um especially fanfiction.net, which runs on ad revenue. Um, they care about the reader way more than the writer because that's their revenue model. It's based on traffic, and they're not getting that traffic from the writers. They do, I think, sometimes fail to comprehend the other side of that equation, but, you know, whatever. So I something in the chat room I want to address. This is, there are times when that these spaces turn readers into writers. No. 
always a, re, a, a writer. You were born a writer. Writers are born. They're not made. Maybe you just woke up late, but you were always a writer. And Rough Trade and Wild Hair and our spaces on Discord might inspire you, might inspire the writer in you, but the writer you are today, you were born that way. All that creativity was bubbling away in there all along. And maybe you needed a safe space to let that out, but it was always there. People ask me um, what I what I do. Um I say, oh, well, I do a lot of things, and um, but I'm a writer. I'm a writer. And that's enough. No matter what I write, whether I get paid for it or not, whether if it's just fan fiction or whether it's original work, whether it gets published, whether it stays on my hard drive for the rest of my life and no one ever sees it, I'm a writer. And having that acceptance inside you is super important. It yes. opens you even up. If you never, even if you never let anybody else see an, a word you've written, it only matters if you know it. And we know you know it. why it's so attractive to be in writing spaces and to to be around other writers because there's this really beautiful energy the creative energy that takes place um in in a writer and being able to share that creative energy with other writers like on rough trade like on discord like on wild hair um in a very intimate in an in intimate circumstance because it's not like a big archive like ao3 or fanfiction.net it which are fine for what they are and I'm I'm not dissing them. I mean, AO3 has done wonders, uh, epic things for fandom. Congratulations, awesome. I hope you win the Hugo. <laughs> but it's not about that. It's about um, creating um, um, relationships with other writers and, um, and 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 having that intimacy of creation that you can't get anywhere else but from other writers. Being around other creative people is just the icing on the cake of life. Seriously. Yes. Sometimes I'll be over here sitting at my computer and I'll have the sprint channel up and I'll be watching you guys sprint, even when I'm not sprinting, just because it's so awesome to see you guys producing. <laughs> and if being in this kind of space inspires you to let that creative creativity out and and to try it, to try something maybe that you've always wanted to do, then that's the writer in you. Because often, if it's, if if there's not if there's not if there's not that writer you were born with lurking away inside, the response instead is to send Kira a specification of the story you would like written. Because that's what we've seen is when you get somebody who's purely a reader, and I know we have some readers are in right now, but some people's reaction to that, a more readerly reaction as opposed to a writerly reaction to that kind of close, intimate, creative space, is to send somebody a specification. But you sat down and picked up a pen, and that's why you're a writer. Because you didn't tell somebody else, write me a story. You said, I have a story to write. And it's a completely different mindset. 
and that's why we know you're a writer from the jump is because that's the way you react. We're down to 46 seconds. I hope you guys are going to have a great week the rest of the week, and we'll probably see you on Friday. Um, Say good night, Julie. Good night, everyone.